Welcome to the Innovation in Action podcast. I'm your host, Peter Merrill. This is a series highlighting what's happening now in innovation. And we'll look at this through the eyes of innovators who we interview in the series. They're all making contributions globally across business, academia, government, and not-for-profit entities. We'll help you to understand what enables these people to make a difference in the world of innovation. The podcast is brought to you by the ASQ Technical Community for Innovation. This is part of the American Society for Quality, a global community of quality professionals, and it has nearly 80,000 members. This podcast is for anyone who wants to learn more about what is happening in innovation today, and for anyone who wants to make innovation happen for themselves. Today, I'm really happy to be talking with Ron Young. Ron is from Cambridge, which is one of my favorite cities in England. It really is a beautiful place. And Ron is founder of Knowledge Associates, an international group of companies. He's also a leading international expert and thought leader in strategic knowledge management. Ron is a practitioner and educator in knowledge management. He served on the ISO International Standards Workgroup for Knowledge Management and lectures on the subject at leading universities. Ron also consults with the United Nations, the World Bank, the European Commission, and the Intergovernmental Asian Productivity Organization. He's jointly authored several books on knowledge management, and his most recent book in 2020 was intellectual capital in the digital economy. It gives me much pleasure to welcome Ron to the podcast. Thank you, Ron, for joining me today to talk about knowledge management. Thank you, Peter. I'm delighted to be here. Let's get straight into it. First of all, could you explain what knowledge management, or KM as we sometimes call it, means to an audience of innovators? Okay. Um, Well, first of all, we've always managed our knowledge. There's really nothing new about managing our knowledge, but knowledge management, when we turn the words around, uh, that's something quite new. And really, it's a result of several drivers, but technology played a big part in the 1980s, 1990s, because Up until then, with information and communications management, we were communicating information to one another. But then we started to develop tools to help people to better communicate and cooperate and collaborate, what we called groupware in those days. And then technologies and tools like today, we have mobile and we have cloud computing. And so what this means, first of all, is that we can now manage, we can create knowledge, we can apply knowledge, uh, we, can, we can do this much faster than ever before because of the technologies. And um, that's really what knowledge management is about today. We mean better capturing, storing, sharing our learnings and ideas to create new knowledge and apply it better in the first place. 
So, Ron, I know you're a strong supporter of knowledge management principles. Could you explain those briefly that you see as most important principles? Yes, indeed, Peter. Uh, principles, for me, are very important because in the world of knowledge management, processes change regularly, technology is changing every single day, and people are joining and leaving organizations. And But what I like about principles, if they're good business principles, is they're less likely to change as often. And so principles-led approaches for knowledge management is very effective. The two key ones for me are, first of all, trust. If there is sufficient trust within an organization or within the team, people will naturally be more cooperative, want to naturally communicate more. And naturally communicating and cooperating naturally leads to more cooperation. And that indeed builds even more trust. And as people are communicating and cooperating and collaborating, they can't help themselves learning. They're learning much faster and creating new knowledge, which we can then better manage and apply. And so trust is a fundamental principle to more naturally make that happen. Secondly, scalability. Knowledge management is not just for organizations, as important as that is. Knowledge management is also equally, if not primarily important, for personal knowledge management and team knowledge management, organizational knowledge management, yes, inter-organizational knowledge management, and globally. So trust and scalability are the two key fundamentals, I would say, for driving effective knowledge management and their principles. You know, I really get it as you explain those things. You know, traditionally, people kept knowledge to themselves. You know, the old saying, knowledge is power. And trust means that we're willing to share our knowledge. And that scalability issue, that becomes absolutely fascinating. So let's dig a little deeper on. Um, some years ago, I read the early work of Nanaka and Takuchi. And uh, they brought out the idea of tacit knowledge and explicit knowledge. Could you explain their work and the difference between those two types of knowledge? Yes. Actually, they published a book in 1995, Oxford University Press, Knowledge Creating Company, how Japanese companies create the dynamics of innovation. And essentially, they were talking about a process of knowledge conversion, a conversion from one type of knowledge to another. They were talking about a conversion from tacit knowledge to explicit, between individuals, between groups and organizations. So what does tacit and explicit really mean? Well, I like to describe it rather like the metaphor of an iceberg. If you think of an iceberg there is a tiny tip of the iceberg that is visible. But actually below what you can see is a very, very deeper, uh, larger 
part of the iceberg. And that's a good way for looking at tacit and explicit knowledge. The explicit knowledge is what you can see uh, visibly. And if there are two people who've got a lot of knowledge, a lot of knowledge which is a result of their lifelong learnings, experiences, ideas, and insights, you only get a bit you get the bits that people are actually communicating with one another. And that is the explicit knowledge. And the tacit knowledge is deep down within. Some people have got a lot of tacit knowledge, you know, and they can't even verbalize it like a, a master chef or specialized engineers. They, they, they may not have... Even the intellectual, it can be experiential knowledge, but it's tacit, it's deep. And that's the knowledge that we try to make explicit and we communicate it to other people in various ways, verbally, or we might give a presentation or a lecture or whatever. When it's deep down, it's tacit. When we try to externalize it and communicate with other people, it then becomes explicit. And Nanaka and Takeuchi actually go on to talk even further about that in a book called The Wise Company, How Companies Create Continuous Innovation in 2019. But the key thing is this. We don't communicate knowledge to one another. What we do is we have tacit knowledge. We make our knowledge explicit, but my knowledge explicit to you is actually to you if you didn't know before information and then you apply the learning process yourself to turn that information itself into your own knowledge so that's the difference between tacit and explicit one of the things that came out as you described that difference was the vast quantities of knowledge that we're creating, uh, particularly as the years move on. And one of the challenges that innovators experience is the storage and retrieval of these vast quantities of knowledge, and particularly explicit knowledge. Could you describe some of the best practices here for doing this? the storage and the retrieval. Right. Well, I'm going to make a bit of a, a counter challenge here because I would argue that when we make our knowledge explicit and communicate it to others, as I've said, it's information for others. So our explicit knowledge is stored is really information. And we might then refer to that information and turn it back to knowledge ourselves. But we're actually talking here about the storage and retrieval of information, which is somebody else's knowledge made explicit, if that makes sense. But whether we call it information or whether we call it explicit knowledge, they're just labels. The, the, the key thing is, in terms of best practices, um, what we found is that in organizing our information and better managing our information and with the new tools and the new processes that have emerged, we find that we can actually now store that information in much better context. It's not just the storage of information in databases, as we commonly call them, but we now start to talk about 
knowledge bases, which are more collaborative. It's more information in context so that we can collaborate better, so that we can co-create together. And so what we're talking about here with the storage and retrieval is we're seeing a movement from the information management, which is about sending, we call it the send model. I'm sending information to you, or I'm pushing information to you, and you're pushing it back to me. We're now talking about share models, share models and tools that support the collaborative process and the co-creative process so that we're not pushing information to one another. We're actually receiving as we need it, um, we can actually go to it when we need it. And so we're, the best practices for storage and retrieval are, are actually changing from that send to the share um, to enable us to get to the stage of even richer uh, information, which enables us to create new knowledge even faster, if that makes sense. Okay, so you've taken us into the uh, ideas of collaboration, which is so important uh, for innovators, and co-creation. And we know that innovators thrive on the pooling of collective knowledge and leading to the creation of new knowledge. Yeah. Could you explain the best practices in new knowledge creation? Well, I'm going to say that there is a best practice, actually, I think that what the best practice that we've learned in the, in the field of knowledge management is effectively applying the collaboration process and co-creation process. And let me explain what I mean by that. I've touched a bit on it. When people are effectively collaborating when you think about what they're actually doing, they are, they are communicating with one another, yes. Um, but in addition to communicating with one another, we're act they're actually testing one another, testing their ideas perhaps. Uh, and other people are in that collaborative process validating, and they will let people know if they agree or if they disagree. And, and because collaboration tends to be a faster interaction than slowly communicating information. This testing and this validation is going on between a team of people fast. And out of that comes new knowledge creation. So what I would say to you is that when we've been researching more effective ways to create new knowledge, we found that those teams that effectively collaborate will create new knowledge faster than any other way. There's been a lot of research and high-performance teams over the last 50 years, um, and a lot of that's been about performance. But now we know that high-performance teams, highly collaborative teams, will not only create new knowledge individually, they validate themselves and they're individually in their own heads, they're creating new knowledge, but they're co-creating as a team. And it's far more than just the sum of the parts. So I would say that the, the best practice for me, for new knowledge creation in an organization is when you get the teams to be effective, collaborative, 
co-creative teams. What you took us into there, Ron, was the practice of transferring knowledge between people. Can you go a bit deeper on that, a little more about knowledge transfer between people? It's a really good question because knowledge transfer is critical. When, when people say, why should I do knowledge management? Well, we know that there are some really valuable benefits, like you're not going to keep reinventing the wheel, you're not going to keep repeating the same mistakes, you're going to dramatically reduce the costs. I can go on and on about the benefits. But one of the critical problems they have is people joining and leaving, and the knowledge transfer is not occurring fast enough. And especially with people that are retiring, for example, or high mobility in work, the critical knowledge needs to be retained. So knowledge transfer is a key piece with knowledge management. And many organizations now have embarked on that. If you've got, I've worked with several UN agencies, for example, where people are on fixed contracts of maybe five, seven years. And at the end of that time, all of that valuable knowledge, it's very hard unless you've got a knowledge transfer process that's effective to retain the critical knowledge. And so organizations have um, been developing knowledge transfer processes for many years. And the one that's the most widely known is Shell with the ROC program. ROC stands for Retention of Critical Knowledge. And why, why this is important is that knowledge retention can either be through storing critical knowledge, as we talked earlier, in documents or whatever, and that's vital. But if you've got effective collaborative teams and communities of practice, although people are coming and going and their knowledge is coming and going, the knowledge is retained, but this time within, if I may call it, the organic knowledge base within the team. If you've got an effective team, if you've got an effective community, you can retain and you can transfer knowledge between the team members far more effectively. And that's a key issue for knowledge transfer. It's one of the key issues of knowledge management. How can we actually transfer it and retain it, uh, the, the, especially the knowledge that's critical to the organization? And so as we get to the end of the podcast, Ron, there's a question which I know everybody is uh, intrigued about, and that is, Everybody is wondering what effect artificial intelligence will have on knowledge creation. This is quite a controversial subject and getting a lot of attention. Can you talk to that? I'll try my best, Peter. And I've got a particular interest in artificial intelligence because it was in the 1980s that I actually um, was embarking on a master's in, in artificial intelligence. Uh, but in the 1980s, artificial intelligence was quite different to what it is today. Uh, in the 1980s, we were talking more about expert systems. How can we capture the knowledge of an expert in a system? 
Um, and those expert systems were, were quite successful in, and are indeed today quite successful in certain limited areas. Uh, it's, they're very successful in healthcare because an expert system can actually do some diagnosis for doctors very effectively, but they are quite time-consuming to prepare uh, and quite costly. Um, and so for knowledge creation, there have been some other developments in AI which are far more exciting. What actually then happened was what we call neural networks and parallel processing, and that's a, quite different to expert systems. It's more like a modeling of how the brain works with its neurons. And these neural networks uh, enable us to do things in parallel uh, and process in parallel. And so that developed into what was then called, uh, and still is today, natural language processing, where machines could start to understand language. We talk about the semantic web now today, which is a meaningful web where AI can actually understand and communicate. And of course, these interfaces we're all using today, we're all using them um, in a lot of the work that we're doing every day now. What artificial intelligence is doing is it's enhancing our senses our ability to see, our ability to hear, um, touch, taste, all of these things are happening. And to my mind, to answer the question, what effect will it have on knowledge creation? I think it's inevitable, first of all, that artificial intelligence will play an increasing part working with humans and knowledge. If you think about it just for a moment, Machines have much better memories than most of us, certainly better than I. I forget things. Machines don't forget things. They are better at remembering. They have enhanced memory, if you like. Machines are faster. They can actually process this uh, faster than humans can with what we understand with the brain. And we're in the era of big data as well, where all these sensors whether they're cameras or microphones or whatever sort of biological devices they are, they are able to process large amounts of data, big data, as we all call it today. And so it's inevitable that machines will enhance human beings through memory, doing things faster and much larger volumes than the, the, the brain can cope with. However, it is still, in my mind, inevitable that human creativity and innovation will continue to be enhanced by using these tools, but machines, artificial intelligence, cannot create and innovate. It can remember things. It can do things faster. It can deal with faster amounts of data. And what's really exciting to me is that it is inevitable also that people will collaborate more with machines. I see human and machine intelligence collaboration, and you might even argue towards co-creation. But what's critical, 
what's critical for me, given that humans are good at creativity and innovation and artificial intelligence is better at aspects of our brain with memory and faster and big data, the key thing is the importance of the ethical design and the operation of these. They're becoming more autonomous and intelligent systems. It's about the ethical design for the benefit of humanity. And I think that AI will have a significant effect on knowledge creation to the degree that it enhances and works together with humans. It's not um, either or, it's both and. And that's the key challenge, I believe, for the future. Well, Ron, thank you so much. This has been absolutely fascinating. And I've really enjoyed speaking with you today about knowledge management. We could have carried on talking about this so much longer. And I also want to thank our audience for listening to the Innovation in Action podcast brought to you by the ASQ Innovation Technical Community. And just as a reminder, the ASQ's innovation technical community is dedicated to building and providing access to the growing body of innovation knowledge. And we do this through partnerships, training, and online presence for all the people in the innovation space, whether they're new to it or whether they are experienced in it. And this enables you to become a more effective force for innovation in your professional environment. If you want to hear more episodes of the podcast, do please visit the Innovation in Action podcast on Spotify and simply click on subscribe. In our next episode, we're going to be talking with an expert on serial innovation or continual innovation. Too often, innovations are one-shot deals. And in the next podcast, we're going to look at how to make that continual. I want to conclude by thanking you for listening to the ASQ Innovation Technical Community Podcast. Thank you, and see you next time.